Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to um, another wonderful Helix Center program. Today it's going to be on COVID and literature. And I'm sure it's going to be just a wonderful talk that we're all going to be uh, privy to listening in on. Anyway, I'm Associate Director of, of uh, Helix. My name is Gerald Hurwitz, um, our esteemed director. And the session is elsewhere today. I'm sure he'll be listening in cyberspace somewhere. I just want to make two quick announcements, and then we'll get started. Uh, we have another program scheduled for two weeks from now on the effects of, media, of the media. And then starting, that's the 14th, um, and two weeks beyond 24th, forgive me, February 24th. And then March 9th, we will begin what we hope to be a five-part series on the senses, and we're starting with touch on March 9th. So that's really pretty exciting. Well, so with no further ado, I want to introduce our esteemed board member and coordinator for this talk, Ellen Gilbert. So as they say in the bids, housekeeping. But in this instance, we're literally talking about housekeeping, as in keeping the roof over our heads. Helix is a nonprofit organization. We charge nothing as we continuously bring remarkable conversations to live and online audiences, although we certainly incur expenses in doing so. Our website, helixcenter.org, is a treasure trove of recordings of previous roundtables. It also features a donate button. We do not offer tote bags. We offer great ideas. Your programs have detailed descriptions of each of our panelists' work. If I had to enumerate their many remarkable achievements, we would never get to today's discussion. So I will identify each of them briefly. Then we can go on to expand on their work with my first question, which is to ask them to describe each, what each of them has done in recent years, especially as it relates to COVID. Today's participants, Simon Critchley, hand please, <laughs> is, Han, <laughs> is Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York and a member of the Board of Directors at the Onassis Foundation. Richard Deming, teaches in the English department at Yale University, where he is director of creative writing. Eric Kleinenberg is the Helen Gould Shepherd Professor in the Social Sciences and director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. Daphne Merkin is the author of several novels and writes cultural, cultural criticism and book pieces for a variety of publications including the New York Times Book Review, The Atlantic, Airmail, and the New York Review of Books. Maria Pisano is a book artist, printmaker, curator, and educator. She publishes her work under the Memory Press imprint. Our panelists' books are available for purchase on site today. The online audience and those of you who want to purchase additional titles can go to McNally Jackson, that's one word, McNallyJackson.com, 
To learn more about Maria Pisano's work and to order her books, please visit her website, mariagpisano.com. Note that Natalie Eve Garnett was unable to join us today. Since Eric's pub date practically coincides with this event, and because it provides a broad overview of the politics of the pandemic, I'm going to ask him to speak first and then have everyone follow as the spirit moves you. At about four o'clock, I'll invite the audience to ask questions. Then we can enjoy some book buying and casual hanging out. Thank you. So just go. Okay. We have very limited instructions here, so we're going to wing it. I'm going to speak for about two hours. And then, um, let, since we're in a room um, that houses a lot of psychoanalysis and thinking about psychoanalysis, I thought I'd begin with a, a quick question. I'm a social scientist. I think I'm the only social scientist on the panel. We love to survey people. So let me just ask, in keeping with the psychoanalytic spirit and the survey research spirit, um, could you raise your hand if you feel like you have fully processed what you experienced in the year 2020 and the pandemic? You really thought about it, worked, worked it out with other people? Okay, so I, two, three. Can we admit that's a small number for a group of people who are used to processing things for a living? Um, the, the idea that um, drove me to write this book, which comes out in two days, about the year 2020, um, is that this experience we've been through together, which may be one of the major experiences of our lives, uh, was overwhelming, uh, more, more than we're generally capable of processing. Um, because so many things happened all at once at such a tremendous scale. So uh, for me, 2020 was about the pandemic, of course, but it was also about uh, the murder of George Floyd, uh, and the movement for black lives. It was about the assault on democracy. Remember that idea that 2020 was going to be the election of our lifetime? <laughs> we never go through anything like that again. Um, it was about uh, spike in violence, especially here in the United States. Uh, it was about the free fall of the economy. Uh, millions of people lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. There was a moment where millions of people had lost m much of their savings. Um, it was one of those vertig vertiginous experiences where it, it, you know that Marx phrase, uh, everything solid melted into air. Mm -hmm. All that solid melts into air, it felt like that. For the first time in my life, it felt like everything was up for grabs. And, and I think it was terrifying for, for many of us. Um, people who are, can't, can't get enough news turned off the radio, stopped reading the newspaper. Um, we were told to socially distance. Um, which was an ambiguous idea, right, to distance ourselves from other people. One might have said what we needed at that moment was social solidarity, but we were told the distance, and I think for many of us the impulse was to just get under the covers. And that might have been an okay survival strategy, but it also, I think, compounded the anxieties of that moment. And I will confess that when I first learned about this new coronavirus, that was moving from China through the world, I had a little bit of that terror and a sense that maybe I just want to block the world out and get away, make sure my family was okay, come back when it was done. 
but also, I, I'm a social scientist, and much of my career has been motivated by this idea that um, the crises reveal things. Uh, when we look closely at a crisis, we can see who we are, we learn what we value, we, we see whose lives matter, right? and, and by implication, we see whose lives don't. And generally speaking, what I think people in my world should do in a moment like this is throw ourselves into it and, and look as closely as we can. And so despite this impulse to hide, uh, very early in, the, in 2020, I decided that I was going to organize a team of researchers and start looking all over the world to see what was happening in real time. And I was very ambitious in the beginning. I thought I would go everywhere. And then it turned out the pandemic made that impossible. So I wound up narrowing my purview and instead decided to follow a set of people through the year. I found a, a person in every borough of New York. I mean, if you're going to be trapped somewhere and you want to get a global view of what's happening, New York City is not the worst place to be, right? The, the world is here. And so I did this very unscientific thing, which is I tried to think about, you know, what's the story of each borough if I had to tell the story? Manhattan or the Bronx, Queens, Staten Island. Um, you left, left out Brooklyn. Brooklyn, every, you don't have, when you're hanging out with writers, you don't have to say Brooklyn because it's just there. <laughs> as a, as a, so that's my theory of the case. So, um, so I, I had someone from every borough, and then I, um, I thought, well, what am I missing if I do this? And first thing I, I realized in the middle of the summer, I was missing someone who was really about the Black Lives Matter protests, and I decided to find a person who made their life about that. And then I realized what I'm really missing is the story of someone who can't be interviewed because they died of COVID. So I found, through the help of the MTA, uh, the family of a, of a custodian in the subway system who died in the first weeks of the pandemic. And so there are these seven central characters. And, and, I, and I tell their stories um, in hope that they will speak to some part of the experience, not just of the borough, but also in, in each of us. And, and, and I found that it was easier for me to access some of my own anxieties and concerns, experiences, by looking closely at the stories of other people than it was in some ways even of asking myself. Like, their stories reminded me of things. Um, and because I'm a sociologist and I think about things analytically, I alternate between this, these kind of narratives of the seven characters with uh, chapters that try to answer questions like, um, how did masks become so contentious and controversial in the United States when in most societies people just wore them? Like, how did we invest such weight, such political weight, in this little piece of fabric, which suddenly showed everyone which side you were on and wasn't really about health, but your, your position in the world? Or wh why is it that in most societies, um, rates of violence went plummeting down, but in the United States, the reverse happened? So I wanted to answer those kinds of questions, and so the, 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 that, that's the structure of the book. And I, I guess I'm, I'm going to stop. but the, the the book is really an invitation for us at this moment to come out of this year for a reason, which is, you know, here we are again, um, making very similar decisions. Um, right, which team do we want to win the Super Bowl? San Francisco, uh, right, or, did, or the Chiefs? You remember, that was the Super Bowl in 2020, <laughs> it turns out. But, but no, we have a, an enormous political decision that we have to make this year, and it feels to me like, um, we should process uh, all, all of these things that we went through because they have 
changed us. In, in many ways, it feels this, like things are similar, but there's something different about us. We're, we're more distrustful. We're more divided. Mm -hmm. We're a little more quick-tempered. The things that kind of picked up and got under our skin in 2020 are, are still with us in a repressed way today. And so, you know, my hope for this conversation and for this book is that we can just start to talk. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. Let me just start. Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me, um, Ellen, and the center. I truly appreciate it. Um, my book is called, um, I'm a book artist, um, and my book is called Fracture COVID-19, Memento Mori versus Memento Vivere. I don't know if you want to pass this around. Sure. Um, okay, so people get an idea. So that's what I'm passing around is the journal and a few pages from the journal, just a little blurb. Uh, so this artist book takes on a journey. We're in a country where breakthrough in the COVID-19 pandemic, and it takes, the book is three parts. It's a journal um, that basically details what happened to us from it. And I um, chose a period from, um, it was March, it was early February um, to the end of June. Um, and, and it was a period that obviously upended our lives. And there's personal um, entries, poetry, I asked also five nurses to give me their first person um, reaction and what they went through, and uh, a clerk from a, a store. Then the book is combined mm. with masks and tents. So this makes an, an ensemble. Um, the tent structure symbolically represent the seven human uh, humanitarian callers, the frontline essential workers, in the form of an embrace and a display in a protective circle. The masks of death, representing the response from our former president and government, were inspired by Edgar Allan's post story, The Mask of the Red Death, and are accompanied by Dante's Seven Deadly Sins, which are printed in front of the masks. When exhibited, the masks stand behind menacing the tents. As in the story of Prince, Prince Prospero, he is completely callous to all the people dying in the Red Death. Um, and so inside, he's invited all his friends to come for a big party, and they party for six months. And then he decides to give a mask ball. And the mask ball he gives in this um, he, he decorates these seven rooms, each with different colors. And the masks are designed in the same colors as the rooms. And the last room has, is black, and it has uh, a clock. And the clock strikes. And every time the, clock, the hour strikes, everybody stops and is afraid uh, and, and basically thinking. And then at midnight, when the clock strikes at midnight, a figure comes through, an invited figure, and the prince is extremely upset that an invited figure should dare come to the party. And as the figure comes through, the prince tries to stop him, 
but he cannot. And as he moves along to the, set, to the last room, the prince dies. And so all the guests, as they move on to that room, they all die. So the Red Death has come even to the prince. From our government, the response for the pandemic was slow, erroneous, controversial, and adver adversarial. Our president negated science. He created mistrust in wearing masks and vaccines. He did not explain the nRNA role in the development of the vaccine and its efficacy, causing mistrust and resistance to the vaccine. Grandstanding, he offered dangerous cures by passing the CDC recommendations. Dr. Fauci and other experts were demonized and minimized, along with their families, and were threatened with bodily harm. The former president and his staff were daily tested for the virus, while frontline and essential workers lacked the ability to do so and remain unprotected. FEMA and the military were initially sidelined in coordinating emergency preparations, which is normally the way this is done and contracts were given to loyal outsides, outsiders to provide masks which much, and much-needed equipment from hospitals with disastrous results. They never delivered, and all the money was lost. FEMA was not passed until March 2020. By 6-30-2020, the U.S. had 126, 739,000 deaths, the highest in any nation in the world. According to statistics, if masks had been used, Sooner, more than 30,000 people would still be alive. The majority of deaths were black, Latinos, and Native Americans, due to the, to the highest percentage of being employed in the front line and service jobs and not being able to work from home. Hospitals were overwhelmed with the number of patients. Doctor, nurses, and super staff were left to care for the sick and dying, inadequately protected, putting themselves and the families in harm's way. Running out of space, I think, especially in New York, you saw by the Javis Center and other parks, medical tents started to go up. And that was, that's my tents outside, part of this book. Great. Yes. That's Maria, what inspired. Could you, could you speak a little bit to the process? As, as these things were unfolding, were you working and documenting and illustrating it as they happened? So, um, as I think with everybody, not knowing what was happening around us, I kept on reading, I kept on newspapers, online, type TV, and every time, every day you woke up to something, for me anyway, that made me angry. <laughs> and at some point I needed to do something or go crazy. And so I started yes. doing this journal and then the journal went, moved on. As I, what more I read, the more I saw, the more, you know. Um, and it just so happened that I read The Mask of the Red Death again. I don't know how it even happened. Um, and I saw this parallel between what was happening in our government and between the Prince Prospero, how he treated his people, just letting them die outside his, his castle. And so, and then when the tents went up, you know, uh, I was reading, you know, not only in New York, but all around the world, in Italy, you know, I'm from, I'm from Italy. So I see that here you have all these tents, you know, and these doctors putting their lives on the line. And I'm saying, 
you know, I just can't accept the fact that our government is just not paying attention, not, you know, caring, not providing anything for these doctors and these nurses and these first responders who are dying. Um, and so that's right. what, yeah. you know. Um, the and, online uh, audience can't see it, but the book includes both photographs and illustrations and graphics. And, and it's very beautiful because Maria has varied the typeface. Right. So um, there's italic, there's yeah. larger typeface. So for the, for, the, for the voices of the first responders, I use blue. And for the voices of the government, I use red. It's very effective. Yeah. And so you. I do yes. want to read um, the voice of one of the nurses. She works on Memorial Sloan Kettering. Is that OK? Of course. OK. Um, I contracted the coronavirus early March when the term social distancing and wearing a mask were new to all, us, to all of us. I experienced fevers, hallucinations, and loss of taste and smell. Although I'm not fully recovered, I still have an underlying anxiety. Will this happen again? How will this change the way we work? When developed, will a vaccine adequately protect us? As an avid reader, I am disappointed, yet not surprised, on my inability to read a book. I cannot concentrate. Here's an attempt to explain the impact of COVID on essential workers. So here she is, a nurse working with cancer patients. And what is she saying? She's not concerned about her. She talks about other workers that are impacted. The focus has been on healthcare workers on the front line of this crisis, but the often overlooked true heroes are the essential workers that show up every day, the cashiers and the grocery store, the mailmen, UPS, and other delivered people who bring us our essential items such as food and cleaning products, the sanitation workers, the MTA workers, all these essential workers are the people who make our world function even through a pandemic crisis. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. You're not finished? Please continue. Is my time up? We're not timing. Okay. Yeah, by the way, there's a really bad clicking sound. Can everyone hear I'm, this? I am aware of I that. I hear it, yeah. Yeah. It's yours. It's what? Let's see. Someone's earrings are hitting the mic. Oh, that's what it is. I wondered what that was. Thank you. I think this fell out of my ear. Okay. Excuse me. I think this fell out. It's a good thing I took my earrings out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. The first responders did not skirt their responsibilities regardless of the peril and placed their lives on the line to protect us. They were not egotistical self-serving. They gave us hope, showed us courage, devotion, humanity, honor, integrity, and truth. And truth, and this is what's on the on the tense. These these words. In contrast, the seven masks and the seven deadly sins committed by the former president and his henchmen, and the seven deadly sins are from Dante's Inferno: lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. And these are also marked on the tense. And the masks are the same color as the room. 
um, I'm basically um, saying some of the stuff that you said, how um, we came to a point in our world where um, placing we pl the government started placing blame for the pandemic on China, Chinese people and immigrants without proof, reinforcing fear, hate, and mistrust of the other, creating a zero tolerance policy and despicably separating Im Im immigrant children from their families. In total, more than 5,000 children were taken away from their parents. And as of September 2023, more than 1,000 children were still not united. Hateful speech after George Floyd was killed and the demonstrators were complaining, were demonstrating against racism. They were labeled thugs by our president. Peaceful protests in Lafayette Park in DC were violently attacked by the National Guard so they could get a photo op in front of St. John's Episcopal Church, mocking religion and directly assaulting the First Amendment rights of freedom of assembly and freedom of speech. He continuously distorted the truth, lied, and fostered an environment where hate groups were given a voice and encouragement to act out. Women rights and voting rights were attacked. His main goal against asylum seekers and immigrants was creating a beautiful wall along the southern borders with no money spare. And as of 2020, the estimated cost was 33 million per mile, monies that could be used for immigrants and their needs and to create more judges. There was the environmental cost to create this wall was the destruction of the National Butterfly Center, Rio Grande Valley National Wildlife Refuge, Native American burial grounds, and destruction of habitats for many species living in the area. It's getting too painful, Maria. I can't, I it can't is painful. Any, any it is more. painful. And this is just anymore. <clears throat> yeah, these are just some of Thank some. you. No, I'm, just, no, I'm, is, I'm at the end. This is, this is, <laughs> yeah, this is just some of what happened in our country, and we're still living through the results we of that. We sure are. We certainly are. Okay. Yes. We're no longer a country admired across the world. Today, we're living with the consequences of Trump's administration. We're admired in controversy, discord, and hate. He, his appointment of three conservative justices of the Supreme Court and 200 conservative federal appeals court justices have changed our country. The most egregious ruling was on June 24, 2022, in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, overturning 15 years of precedence of a ruling Roe v. Wade. The book is interspersed with images of nature, which was a place, I think, where we all could relax, could breathe, could find some hope. And I just want to read a final poem, and then I'm done. End of day. I am threading on the waves, manipulated by ocean currents, lonely and marooned. What can I grab to anchor me? The ocean, a place I love to calm me, embrace me, hug me, complete me, now alien, invasive. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Daphne, the books that have gotten me through the pandemic. COVID-19 betrayed America's cult of curdled optimism. FaceTime with lipstick. <laughs> Tell us about it. 
All right. Um, I think I'm going to sound like my usual, somewhat contrarian, somewhat pessimistic self before I say what was in these pieces, which is, I do, I mean, personally, I would like to leave Trump and all that surrounds him out of the COVID discussion, okay. only, if only because Trump comes into every discussion mm-hmm. overbearingly. Um, my feeling during COVID was that COVID did not particularly bring people together as I thought 9-11 did. My sense was that people became more of themselves during COVID. If they were isolated, they drew sort of salvation from the isolation that COVID naturally provided. If they were very social, they obviously missed the social life of COVID and tried to circumvent it via Zoom and all those ways of doing it. Um, I'm also not so sure, I base this on a conversation I had two days ago with my, with my literary agent. I wanted to send him a book by a Hungarian journalist. I thought it was supremely well written on Ukraine. And he said, I think people have forgotten Ukraine. Um, that might sound brutal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that might sound brutal, but I do think, as everyone has said about Americans, they have a particularly short memory. Um, I'm not so sure COVID has permeated the culture in a um, significant, sustained way. I think at the very beginning, there was, I still remember the clapping when at the end of the day for the nurses. I also think COVID brought out less positive things like class distinctions. I remember most of COVID, I was the only, only resident in my building. And it is, and it's a, if you want to call it a posh building, it's not an unposh building. And I thought, am I, am I the only person who doesn't have a summer house? Um, everyone got away. I think people looked out, as people tend to do. But again, as I said, I'm not a particularly optimistic person. I think people looked out primarily for their own, how they would survive COVID, not how the group or the uh, civic society 
I will, I, um, Ellen nicely mentioned these pieces I completely forgot because I'm busy writing a piece on Barbara Streisand's 970-page memoir <laughs> for the New York Review of Books. That's our next roundtable, by the yeah. way. <laughs> um, not that I understood why the New York Review of Books was interested in it, but they were. Um, so I said that in the beginning of COVID, um, I said I thought it would bring out all my high-minded reader, readerly inclinations, like my promises to myself to reread Anna Karenina. Um, or, first of all, I felt panicky, as I think a lot of people did, and didn't read so much in the beginning, and mainly read my beloved British periodicals like TLS and the London Review of Books. Um, but I did eventually, I wasn't in, so inclined, I can build, I have two broken arms, not one, so much for my devotion to coming to this. Um, very, very grateful. <laughs> I was not particularly interested in reading either about Donald Trump, as I said, or COVID itself. I thought it was early to form conclusions about COVID. Um, I think there was a lot of sentimentality about COVID, which there usually is about. So I found myself reading... Um, historical book to take my mind off the sur surreal, which COVID did feel surreal, present, which is a book called Say Nothing, a true story of murder and memory in Northern Ireland, which is about the IRA by someone named Patrick Radden Keefe, the New Yorker writer, and was one of the best journalistic books I had read. It's an examination of the intersection of politics and Trump, no, politics and psychopathology. And it takes on specifically Jerry Adams, who was the influential fig figure who helped negotiate the truce with England, but according to this book is beyond frightening and was involved in the murder of quite a few people. Mm -hmm. Then I went on from there to read, I always like books about, um, especially if they're well-written, which many aren't, about private life. So I reread a book I adored called Montauk, which is by the Swiss writer Max Frisch. Um, and it's about essentially his failed relationship with women and a relationship he has with a publicist. Um, then the, during the third month of the pandemic, I, when it was becoming increasingly clear that an, an end was not in sight as quickly as was first envisioned, 
I was feeling particularly sad about a writer friend of mine who I had had dinner with just at the beginning when people weren't totally sure about COVID. And another friend of mine had a book party at, um, forgetting the name of a club, the club I belong, a club I belong to for writers. Century Club? Century Club. <laughs> Shows you how much I like it. Um, <laughs> and I had dinner with this writer named Patty Bosworth. And 10 days later, she died. And that led me to read a book called A Burning. Um, and I immediately warmed to the opening line that you smell like smoke, my mother said to me. And it's about a terrorist act that isn't really a terrorist act. And then lastly, although I'm not a lover of... Um, Fabulism. I did read a book that I loved called The Lost Shtetl by someone named Max Gross, which is about a fictional shtetl that was overlooked, which could never have happened in real life, and all these squabbling Jews. And anyway, I found it. I think people, you know, in general, read to, or some people read to escape, but they're different kinds of escapism. So mine is a certain kind. And then I um, wrote a piece that I thought American, this one was for a very good online magazine called Quillette, which is sort of contradictory, which appeals to me. And it was about the optimism of American culture, um, specifically, what's his name? The one who has a very famous book, Norman Vincent Peale, um, who was a big influence. Is that Trump has said, positive thinking? yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when he said things like, believe in yourself, have faith in your abilities, all with exclamation mark. Um, and I talked, to, I did talk a little bit, um, contrary to what I said, that it was telling that Trump's first instincts in the face of COVID was that we should all go back to shopping malls by Easter. Um, and that that kind of optimism, blind optimism, isn't only true, obviously, of Trump. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, widely admired for many things, one British diplomat said about him, you must always remember that the president is about six. Um, and... I, of course, invoked the ur-pessimist Freud, um, who um, when the German pacifist Arnold Zweig wrote to Freud to say that he had discovered and derived a certain consolation 
from the discovery that the explanation of the pile of runes on which we and the de dictators now live like rats is to be found in your work, Freud wrote back, I cannot imagine what consoling explanations you have discovered in my book, thereby smashing any. Um, and the last piece I wrote was on a more, um, you could say, frivolous level. But I don't think it's only frivolous because we live in a society on which, in which people, I think it's called these days, luxus, in which people's presentation matters a lot. And I talked about teaching a class at Columbia over Zoom, and that one day out of the blue, um, I talked about something called the lipstick effect, which is, came out of the, the Depression when more lipsticks were bought than ever before. And then I talked about what really moved me and made me think specifically about women's, obviously, men seem somewhat relieved of this pressure. Um, I saw an exhibit at Yad Vashem, and it was, there are different exhibits there, and it was about women, women in the concentration camps and how they strove to survive with a balance of their femininity intact. So there was a group of objects found in the concentration camps, and these included a cracked mirrored compact, a comb that looked as if it had been carved out of a tree, and a small wooden stick with a daub of color at the end that resembles a rudimentary lipstick. And the Yad Vashem website said the following commentary, looking good during the Holocaust, also carried the meaning of life. Before selections, women smeared on their cheeks whatever remained of the rouge, rouge that they had safeguarded with extreme care and shared it with their mothers and friends. This makeup became a lifesaver. This led me to just to say that on Zoom, you know, I never bothered. I think I wrote that I wore, I don't think I wore pajamas, but I wore <laughs> a sweatshirt and, you know, never bothered at all. Um, and it was an MFA class on the art of literary criticism, and there were some, some women in the class who, you know, were much more put together. And one day, I don't know why, perhaps because I wanted to present an aura of professionalism and not just wear my sweatshirt, I decided to put on a, some lipstick. And then at the end, then at the very end, as I said, I'm not quite sure what impulse seized me. I finished by spraying on an unseasonably summery fragrance by Tom Ford called Neroli Portofino Aqua. <laughs> As I was coming out of my bedroom, my daughter sniffed me the air suspiciously. You're not wearing perfume, she said in a horror-struck tone, as though I had just committed grand larceny. For whom, she asked, continuing to sound appalled. 
for myself, I declared, because I felt like it. <laughs> Thank you. So, Simon, in, in an, um, one of your New York Times, The Stone articles, to philosophize is to learn how to die. The subtitle is Facing Death Can Be a Key to Our Liberation and Survival. So I would love for you to talk about that. And also, if you could tell us about the quarantine tapes and at a distance, if you could say a word about those. Okay. Well, that was Paul uh, Holdengraver, yeah. But yes. The, um... but, but you had two yeah, did, interviews with them. Yeah, and a lot of podding. <laughs> a lot of podding was done. Um, I podded. I did a... I was teaching... Um, Heidegger's Being in Time. Um, it's a long story. In 2020, and then the pandemic happened, and I'd already started to record these things, and then I began to figure out a way of doing that at home. I, I was here throughout in Brooklyn, and um, persisted. I'd say, I mean, to, to put the cat amongst the pigeons, um, COVID was good for business. The philosophy business, um, because everybody else was in the situation that we have been talking about for 3,000 years. Yeah. We are experts in social distancing, from Socrates in his cell through to all the great books that have been produced in isolation and captivity, um, Boethius's Consolations of Philosophy and many others and the books which are responses to plague and war. Um, and I've got, yeah, I've, I, wrote, I wrote something in, this is the New York Times for you. It was published as to, to philosophizers to learn how to die. My title was Our Fear, Our Trembling, Our Strength. They didn't like that. So I got the title that I got. Um, I could talk about that, okay. but a couple of things that come on my mind is you can um, talk about other things. Well, yeah, but the the uh, I I didn't write a book. Uh, I didn't write a book. Um, uh, there's a, a twist in that tale, but I I wrote a book um, which came out in 2019 um, called Tragedy: The Greeks and Us. And uh, when that came out, that came out in paperback just as the pandemic uh, had great for sales, right? And the um, one thing that you notice, one phenomenon I noticed was plague amnesia. Plague amnesia, right? There's a, if we look at history, we're very good at thinking about wars and, and we forget plagues. So suddenly the Spanish flu, which was a kind of a detail of history that had been largely overlooked. We're very good on the Great War, but the Spanish flu that accompanied it, accompanied it and killed huge amounts of people, and which um, we, we seem to forget about plague. And so the, the, the tragedy book, <clears throat> there's one scene in that um, which is a famous scene um, in Thucydides. In Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian Wars. Uh, Thucydides does this extraordinary thing. Um, he'll often pair things. 
put one thing and another thing together and say nothing about the pairing. Just leave it like that. There's this famous speech, Pericles' funeral oration over the dead right? in the Peloponnesian Wars. Um, the great speech where we get the description of Greek democracy. Athenian, Athenian democracy, Athenian democracy. And why the Spartans don't have it, they don't understand it, and they're low lives because of that. Even though they're really good at land war, they're not Athenians. We have invented this extraordinary political form based on isonomia, equality. That's what makes Athenians special. The speech ends. Then we get a description of the city during plague. And people are dying. The water is polluted. People have crowded into the cities because the Spartans are causing havoc in the countryside, burning things, burning farms. People retreat into Athens. It's overcrowded, somewhere like other overcrowded areas on the earth at this point. Uh, the water source becomes polluted. People start to die. And uh, Thucydides just gives a description of the city in plague. And that's placed alongside the description of democracy. And just left like that. Democracy, plague. No comment, no, no kind of, no kind of uh, you know, third order synthesis of that. Just, let's just look at those two things together. And I suppose plague is, you know, during COVID, I was thinking a lot about plague. And, um, and what plague does, and, you know, I was reading about the, the Justinian plague, uh, which wiped out, you know, it's very hard to get exact figures on this, but maybe a third uh, of the population of the entire world and decimated the huge empires of the day, the Persians and the Byzantine, Byzantines. And that led to a kind of extraordinary power vacuum into which what we now call uh, Islam emerged and took over huge areas of, of land. There's that story. And there are wonderful descriptions of that. It's a wonderful book by Procopius, The Secret History. Uh, it's a kind of, you know, Procopius was a senior administrator with Justinian, and he tells all these salacious stories about Justinian being a, such a, a malicious ogre and, uh, and Theodora being a prostitute who allowed geese to lick her genitals for performance before she became empress. And it reveals all this stuff. And there's also descriptions of uh, Constantinople during the plague. So there's a strange kind of forgetfulness of plague and what plague does. And the other one that came to mind in that period was obviously the, you know, what we call the Black Death, which then obviously defines literature for in, in the... Um, in the Middle Ages. And one thing that came to mind was, you know, um, Boccaccio, mm. um, you know, the rich people <laughs> leave the city and they go and find somewhere secure, their version of the Hamptons, and they tell each other stories. And the poor are left to die. But the population during the Black Death, how much of it was decimated? It's, it's unclear, but in, in England, a, a third to a quarter. Right which then caused, uh, had huge effects, right? Because the poor were largely dead. The laboring classes were, you know, were decimated. 
So who was going to do the work? And that then had the weird effect of then creating extraordinary, um, I mean, the, 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 the serfs, the, the villains, suddenly had power. And that led to the, what's widely called the Peasants' Revolt, 1381, where, you know, for a moment, um, the peasants, uh, Jack Straw, John Ball, they basically, they take over London, they burn everything down, they loot the palaces, they, um, the palaces of John of Gaunt, the Savoy Palace, and so on and so forth, and they're, they're burning and looting and killing. They still respect the king, but they want equality, end of property relations, and a fair wage. And the king, Richard II, agrees, and then he sticks it to them later on, <laughs> and the leaders are beheaded and killed. So plague has all sorts of strange effects. And the way we forget about plague is, um, is very peculiar, it seems to me. And so I wonder about what our memory of COVID will be. Will we just forget this, just edit this out, and say, no, now we've resumed and things are fine, and there was this blip, and it seemed very important at the time, but we can't kind of hang on to it. So it's important to go back to you know, what, you, what you were saying, Maria, uh, to remember the thing that I remember in my, you know, I was in my apartment and uh, you know, listening to the radio, WMYC, and um, I live in Cobble Hill, and there was news that morning that 72 people had died in, that, in the previous seven days in Cobble Hill Nursing Home. That's two blocks from where I live. It was that point where they were emptying the hospitals, Cuomo, you know, under Cuomo, putting people into nursing homes, and they were dying. And you just think, and that's... That's somewhere I walked past, I had walked past all the time, I still walked past a lot, and I think this was, you can still feel that, that death, that sense of death there. But it was, um, and also I think about, you know, and you are, you know, obviously a psychoanalytically inclined crowd, um, I think about the, uh, the symptoms that we, experience during COVID, which I think we might choose to forget, you know, um, in particular kind of hypochondria, you know, the feeling of being ill, the feeling of being close to being, or am I ill, or am I not ill, and what do I do about that, and how would I know, and uh, I, and I think a lot of people experienced, you know, weird somatic effects of what was going on. I had the weirdest skin rashes and eczema. And my body was, I'd look, I remember looking at it a few months, it was, it was, a, it was a disaster. It was, it was a hellscape of just rashes and stuff. And, and it was, you know, it was all in here, right? And it was manifesting uh, in terms of symptoms. I think we, we forget about that and it's good to remember those things, and to remember what it was to be alone and scared. And is there a, I guess, <laughs> upbeat, upbeat message? Um, I just wrote some things down here. Um, the, um, well, I mean, the, the kind of the, why was philosophy good, for, why was COVID good for business? Um, 
To philosophize is to learn how to die. Philosophy is an ars moriendi. Right? Um, so the philosopher, this is the version of things we get from Socrates all the way through to Montaigne, through to the present, uh, can look death in the face, face it down, accept that necessity that they are, their being is determined by mortality. We are beings that die and to find a freedom in that. And uh, the line from Montaigne, which I really like, is that, um, um, that slavery uh, for Montaigne consists in slavery to the fear of death. Slavery to the fear of death. And he who has learned how to die, Montaigne says, has unlearned how to be a slave. He who has learned how to die has unlearned how to be a slave. So I think there's something of that in COVID that we, we experienced ourselves at the very limit of ourselves, and some people didn't make it. It's important to remember those yes. people that didn't make it. And we all have people that we, we know that are no longer here. But we did something, and we, we faced that. The last thing I guess I'd say is that... Um, because I was teaching, you know, the old Nazi Heidegger in this, um, there's a lot to say about that. Um, but he makes a very good distinction between fear and anxiety. And psychoanalysts have got things to say about this too. Fear is fear of something. So let's say I'm scared of bears. And then, lo and behold, into the New York Psychoanalytic Institute comes a huge grizzly bear and appears at that door just over there, <laughs> seven foot tall, rearing up. I'm scared. But the security staff here, who are trained, expertly trained in the removal of bears, manage to deal with the bear and lead him out into the street and take him back to the zoo. At which point the fear disappears. So fear has an object. You remove the object, you remove the fear. Anxiety does not have an object. Anxiety is anxiety about nothing in particular. And that's the more difficult thing to, to live with. The weird thing about COVID um, is that COVID was COVID. It was something, but it was something microscopically <laughs> infinitesimally small that we couldn't see like a bear in the doorway. It was a thing that we couldn't see. And, and were we scared of that? Or were we anxious about that? Good point. I guess there's a, there's a blurring there. Yeah. So I think in a sense that the COVID as an experience is, it's fear of a, a virus. A virus is a thing. But the way that percolated, the kind of invisibility of that virus yeah. means that it has a kind of anxious, it made us anxious. And to remember that, and the, the, just the fragility of, you know, the fragility of human affairs, which somehow we imagine that we're free of in 2024. No human society has ever been free of such fragility. Yeah. That's what human beings do. There is war. There, there are power struggles. People, people die. People are taken captive. They're moved. They're displaced. It's, it's horrible. It's ad hoc, chaotic, 
power play. And there's plague that always accompanies that. And, you know, so to that extent, I think it's the last thing I'd say, is that the, and I think this is good, that I think that the COVID revealed something archaic about us, something very old about us, that we, we may think that, you know, we are here in whatever we might think about the world that we're in and the wonderful things that we've achieved or not, um, we are still deeply archaic creatures and we carry those things kind of within us. And uh, COVID was a way in which those things revived. And that's not a bad thing, you know. Uh, it's not altogether a bad thing. So those are some thoughts that came to me. Thank you. And, um, and I don't think, I guess what came out, uh, last, one more thing, one more thing, yeah. Uh, uh, I had a COVID romance and got married. That was nice. Oh wow! That was a, yeah. that was a great that was a good, that, that was that was wonderful, and that you know that's uh, so I thank COVID for that. Um, also, the um, in a sense the, the the way in which it. I'm very I'm very interested in <clears throat> in mysticism. Um, for all sorts of reasons. And I've been teaching a class on mysticism off and on for 10 years or so. And uh, mysticism is often involved in a practice of withdrawal, what's called anachoresis, right? Withdrawal. And you retreat from the world, like St. Anthony withdrew from the city, the Manhattan of his day, Alexandria, into the desert, into his cave, and his cave taught him what he needed to learn. And the, um, that, that, so in a sense, we, we all became anchorites or anchoresses in, the, in, in COVID. And uh, there's something to that, right? So there's also a kind of um, a spiritual dimension to this isolation and withdrawal, which also leads us back to archaic practices and traditions, which we think we might be done with as nice, secular, modern people. But actually, uh, we have a lot to, to learn from that. So I think there is also a, I think also just in terms of, if, we, if you think back to 2020 and what you actually experienced perceptually at different times, right? Disturbances of the perceptual field, hallucinations, visions. It was very odd, right? Time. Time, 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 oh. and time, yeah. What happened to time? Right, it seemed like, I was going to say one thing that you yeah. said, COVID was good for business. Good for business. It was also good for the non, very non-business field, which was poetry, was much more discussed during COVID. Yes. And its uses. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, I was going to ask you one question of yeah, the sure. very many interesting things you said. Not quite sure. Can we hear? Can can we hear from oh, sure. Richard, and then and then we'll oh start the questions. Yes. Okay. Yes. So Richard, um, there was a beautiful piece about your book, which is called "This Exquisite Loneliness: What Loners, Outcasts, and the Misunderstood Can Teach Us About Creativity." An American scholar, and um, 
It's described as an interesting and far-ranging book. And you are described as the bard of lonely endings. <laughs> but he also says this is a warm and hopeful book. So tell us about tell us about that. We uh, need to hear about that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I kind of I feel Daphne's impulse. By now, I feel like all the questions are coming from me, um, but I are coming from me. But I mean, one of the things, the questions that I have right now that that I hadn't quite thought about before, would is what do we mean in this occasion by COVID? Um, because there is the very real um, virus, but the, but also there is a way of thinking about it, the way that Eric had set it up, which is the, the sort of concatenation of, of events that fill that time. So which of these things, when we say COVID, what are we talking about? Um, and that was something that, that is on my mind. Now, um, I this book that is about loneliness was written uh, I started it, the project, before um, COVID started sweeping through. Um, and it was because my own chronic loneliness throughout my life. And um, it just, it did give me the time to, to focus on it. But it was something that I was already working on. And it did have this interesting effect that, you know, I could, well, you know, get phone calls and, uh, you know, talk outside with friends and, and they would be talking about how lonely they are. And I was like, oh, welcome to my world. Like, this is where I've been my whole life. Like, in fact, now it's kind of easy because you all know where I'm coming from. Um, and I, really, that was kind of a, there was kind of an effect there. But it was also um, what had spurred me to write it was, um, I had been writing a piece about um, the film Synecdoche, New York, um, which I think is one of the saddest movies ever made, and it's oh, yeah. starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I, uh, I call the, the Marlon Brando of loneliness. I mean, it's, it's a through line through all his work. I mean, even the funny stuff, you're like, oh, God, let me give you a hug. And, um, and he, so he was, he was um, a, a, you know, a big figure in my mind, and I, I write a lot about film, and I was in the midst of writing this essay, um, and a friend of mine called and said, you know, the guy in that movie that you're writing about, yeah, he just died, and he had died of an overdose alone in an apartment. And uh, since substance abuse had been part of my life and my history, um, the sense of the consequences of loneliness came really at home. And that's the thing that I wanted to think through. What are the, what are the consequences of loneliness? And then um, as I'm writing this book and, and looking at, I, I wanted to also look at different figures. For me, it was largely people from where loneliness as a condition really becomes something that people are focusing on. And a lot of folks from, say, the 1880s on. And so I looked at Melanie Klein, who you know, wrote a very late and known to this audience, very late essay on loneliness. It was super powerful, I think one of her best. Um, and she was asking uh, on the tail end of a whole lot of grief, um, do you ever feel lonely? And that's kind of the opening question that she asked that someone uh, who works for her and worked for her a long time. And she goes upstairs and just starts writing this essay about what is loneliness. And I think that that was, that was something that did fuel, even though I'm not writing about the, I didn't write about the, the loneliness of COVID, 
that it was something that I could ask and people um, didn't feel the shame that so often attaches to talking about loneliness. Now it was okay because we're all in the same boat and, and people didn't feel like it was a failure of character, which was useful to me because I don't think, you know, this is one of the problems of loneliness is, is that shame that attaches to it. And so I've had plenty of people, plenty of um, therapists and psychoanalysts and, and researchers who've talked to me that, that they, it's actually easier often to get people who suffer from depression or substance abuse, I have both, so um, <laughs> represent in the house. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, we can talk about it because there's been so much research on the you know, the biological and the physiochemical foundations of these, of these issues, um, whereas loneliness does not get attached to those things. So we can say, oh, I'm an alcoholic because I can look at, you know, histories. Yeah, I can look at the generations. I can look at these things and say, well, it's not all my fault or I didn't choose to be this way necessarily. Whereas loneliness, people feel like if they're saying they're lonely, that it is something, that it is their failure of character and very often that they've earned it. But like I said, in this space, I was able to uh, talk to people in a way that they were much more open about, um, which helped me sort of think through who I wanted to look at when I was looking at the, the figures that I wanted to bring out and, and look at. And, you know, I also think that, like, at the foundation for me uh, in thinking about loneliness, and this is sort of something, I think, coming nicely off of what Simon was saying, is that, you know, at our core, at, it, Loneliness is is an is the existential condition. I mean, we are, you know, Melanie Klein, you know, I think brilliantly. Other people have worked on this too. Is that that um, subjectivity, our sense of our own individuality, comes to being when we are separating, realizing that we're separate from our mother, and that's where that that's the separation and the isolation from that sense of I was once I was so. Uh, and sync with another being that I thought we weren't separate. And so uh, that is then this, a desire to get back to that kind of Garden of Eden, yet we, can, we never can. And that was also something that came out really, I thought, kind of interestingly um, or useful for me, terrible for my friends, but the people who had the opposite of it experience of Simon's that in fact had um, COVID divorces or COVID strains because I think that there, that was a way that it showed for a lot of people not not the lim that in fact the, the idea of soulmate is really just the sentimentality and that it is an ongoing conversation it is an ongoing struggle to be with another because they're always separate at some level. And so if you have this very busy day, you touch in and you have the, the commonalities. But when people were kind of all day, every day with each other, they started to find that instead of the commonality or the shared bonds, the differences, which also make relationships important. We need relationships because of difference. But it became very clear uh, that, that we aren't that sentimental whole. So again, this was things that I wanted to look at. And, and you know, the one choice that really came out of um, looking at, like I wanted it to, to sort of not speak directly to the, the pandemic and the situation of it, because I, well, I wanted to look at Aegon Sheila, 
the painter mm -hmm. who died because of the great flu of 1918. Uh, as did his friend and um, basically his mentor and best friend, Gustav Klimt, and so did his wife, uh, newly married, and, and she had really changed uh, Sheila's life. And she was pregnant and she died from uh, the influenza outbreak. And then a month later, he too died. And so this to me um, was just, it, just when he had kind of moved past his sense of being just the wild romantic painter and had found like new depth uh, and not, it wasn't solving all his issues, but there was a new groundedness in his life that he hadn't had because of his family life. And so that was something that I really thought was important because I think also I wanted to look at that rather than necessarily go to a moment that we were experiencing because I think, and this is you know sort of ongoing and throw out to everyone, I think one of the real problems of thinking about COVID in literature, um, and it may be different from say social, uh, social sciences, <clears throat> is that we all generally had time to think about what we were all processing. And even though we didn't finish it, most of us, we were still doing it, which makes it harder, I think, to be, for me, to be a writer, to write about that period, because I feel very much like everybody has such a deep take on it that it becomes kind of redundant. And so a lot of the work that's kind of come out, the literary work that's come out of it, you know, very quickly, or films, feel a dated and feel to me like already chewed we've already digested it the thing to do with this is to find the future moment which we ref we we can reflect back on it and get it in its entirety both in its its uh both in its texture and then its overview because ultimately that's i think where literature often steps in which is the very personal experience of a collective moment. It is, you know, the poem is the cry of the occasion that, that Wallace Stevens tells us about. And so what we need to do is find that moment that uh, the individual cry can speak for the moment, but that, that may take some time. And digesting, uh, you know, Eric's terrific book, thinking about, you know, this, this, the, the multiple factors that are happening in this one moment and bringing them together in order to separate them, to see them better. Can I say, um, this that's fascinating, you put so much on the table, and um, I want to talk a little bit about loneliness and isolation, um, solidarity, um, which was also a kind of evanescent possibility, um, and um, the, this question of what it was to go through something together. So years ago, I wrote a book called Going Solo, about the fact that there's more people living alone in the world than ever before. I think you maybe wrote about it at some point. And um, I was very attuned to this situation where millions of people were not just um, hiding at home from this disease when we had to socially distance. They were home alone. And, and, a, and, a, and, and to be alone meant something very different. So early in the pandemic, we started reaching out to people in that situation to have conversations about the experience. This is in real time. It was really striking. Um, people who live alone develop techniques for dealing with that situation and for, and, and, and for managing loneliness, which is inevitable uh, as a, a kind of 
threat. Um, but what they kept returning to was this idea that uh, they felt, unlike at other times in their life, that they were going through something with everyone else at the same time. There was a way in which they felt that there was, their experience was in sync with the experiences of other people around them. And I'm not a psychoanalyst, so I can't quite make sense of this as much as well as other people in the room, but the, they, what they conveyed a sense of, and this is, you know, April, May, June of 2020, not that they felt lonely in the conventional way we speak of loneliness. They said they felt physically lonely. They, they longed for intimacy, touch. They said they felt unmoored in the world because they realized the extent to which their sense of themselves was anchored in interactions they had with familiar strangers, kind of people in the neighborhood who they see in a recurring way that just kind of organized the narrative of their life. And they said something else that I thought was very powerful, which is that more, more than loneliness, what they felt was on their own. This distinction between being alone and feeling lonely was really crucial for them. And it feels like it's important for this conversation as well. That the, 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 the bit of feeling, al of feeling alone was, here we were in this moment where everything was on the line, where there was a kind of profound insecurity, like we all had the rash, right? Mm -hmm. Because the stress, right? We, there was a rash somewhere in all of us, and yeah. be, because, because this, it was too much to handle the stress of that moment. And I think that's also probably why we don't want to talk about it, and we do want to find other literature, because who wants to live inside of that thing? Why not forget the pandemic or the... But we felt as if in this moment of need where we needed a hand and some, some sense of security, I think to be American in this moment was to feel abandoned in some, in some crucial way, to feel like it's, it's, it's on you to get through this. And I actually have, I really responded to you saying, I don't want to bring Trump into this conversation because every time I found myself writing about Trump in this book, I tried to cut it out as much as I could because we've just, it, it's just everywhere. And it, and it feels uninteresting in a way. Like it feels so important to say all the words that you said about what it meant to live in America with Trump as the president when you needed some sense of coherence and a plan and a strategy. And you have the president saying, today I'm here to announce that the CDC has set a new guideline and all Americans should wear masks in public. I mean, personally, I'm not gonna do it, you know? I don't think you really need to. I mean, think about the chaos that that you know, generates. So, but, so I, I, I don't want to dwell on Trump, and at the same time, to li I think it's important for us to, to, to recover our memory of what it felt like to be in that vortex where there was no leadership, there was no coherence. Well, there's different, different. Mm. Well, I'm saying I brought him up because people look to him for... Yes, which, 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 yes for, and he provided those nightly, yeah. you know, the, the, the structure and the order and the plan, and that felt good to many people, you know, until, until we realized that it also created this duality, because now what ha one thing that happened in America is that while other societies developed that sense of solidarity and common purpose, we started to split apart, right? Yeah. It, was, it was there with the mask, but it was also at night, do you watch Cuomo or do you watch Trump? But then there was also... Um, the, the magical thinking which Trump had, I, I don't want to let the people in from the cruise ship because I like the numbers where they are. 
and you can be shopping again at Easter. But, but it turns out that Cuomo decided he didn't want people in New York to know how many people were dying in the nursing homes, like in Cobble Hill. So Cuomo and, and other governors as well, they just cooked the books. They just changed the numbers. So even the, even the heroes had this. I mean, America was deeply dysfunctional. And so I, I bring this up in the sense that um, I, I, I just wrote this op-ed in the Times last weekend about this question of loneliness. Because I think there's something that's still fundamentally off. Like, I think the rash is still there mm -hmm. um, for, for everyone. The, the collective rash is there. And, and it's been striking to me to see the Surgeon General um, announce this campaign, and I'm curious to know your thoughts about it. The Surgeon General, for the first time in American history, said, you know, the big public health problem that I'm going to focus my energy on is the loneliness uh, epidemic. And he's used this language of the loneliness epidemic. And I've had lots of conversations, you know, with his office and occasionally with him, and I've seen this happen. And it's like the solution to the problem, he says, is uh, put your phones in a separate room when you get into the house. <laughs> and if you're busy and your phone rings and you see that it's a person in your world, you'll, don't just send it to voicemail. You know, answer the phone and say, Simon, it's great to hear from you. I'm really busy right now. I'm in the middle of a panel, actually. But, um, <laughs> but, but let's talk later. And I, and I listen to the diagnosis of our collective problem, and I listen to the remedy. And I think that, although I am as convinced as anyone that loneliness is like a massively significant issue and, for me, kind of a part of the modern condition, and something that we all struggle with at different points in our life at some time. Like, I think that diagnosis of the problem in the country now is wrong. I think, I think that what we're suffering now collectively, not individually we might be suffering from loneliness. I think the collective peril is not that we're lonelier than we've ever been. I don't believe that's true. I think the collective peril is that we were in this moment where we could suddenly could see things and we realized there's no grown-ups in the room. There, there, there isn't a plan. Yeah. We, no we, plan. We, we can't trust each other. No. And, 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 and I want to identify this as a peculiarly American experience as well. In, in, the, in, in this, in this op-ed piece, you say that the result is a durable crisis in American civic life. And I was wondering why you use the word durable. It's an interesting word. Well, I, th I, th I mean, it was emerging before 2020. It's not like, you know, distrust and division uh, started in 2020, but, but I think it's been intensified and it's, it's contagious like the virus. And, and I think our inability to see it, to, to kind of see how this has worked out in our collective life is, is really pathological. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's the thing, it's the thing in, in our politics, it's the thing that I fear. And so, obviously, loneliness is a part of our political story. We have, Arendt tells us to think about loneliness and fascism. We can't help but think about this m moment in which we have the attack on democracy and the rise of authoritarianism around the world as being connected to something that's off in us. So, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm serious about loneliness. I take it. I take it seriously. I take the problem seriously. Doesn't England but have a minister of loneliness? It does have a minister of loneliness. I'm finding yes. such Just a strange <clears throat> what could solution, <laughs> like sort of like um, putting a 
label on a door and saying, this is the principal. Uh -huh. And if you have trouble with loneliness. Uh -huh. um, but it was interesting to me that there was that public acknowledgement also of a, in many ways, amorphous problem. And that was a few years ago. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. What if you email the Minister of Loneliness and you get an away message? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Daphne, I haven't forgotten. I, I'm sorry I cut you off before. You had a question for Simon. If it's not too late and if it's apropos, please. No, I was just interested when Simon was saying about archaicness. Yeah. Why is it good for us? to be reminded of archaicness, presuming I know what you mean by archaicness. Mm -hmm. <coughs> it just interested me as an observation that we go back far. Yeah, we go back, we, yeah, yeah. Things are much more elemental. Yeah. Yeah, but things are much deeper. And I think we divide history up into these ridiculous categories like ancient middle modern and uh, postmodern and i don't really believe any of that mm. i think human beings gather in social forms and they do rather similar things and lo and behold it's not just homo sapiens that do that neanderthals did that the Denisovans did that. Various types of hominids do similar things too. So the archaicness is also an archaism about the species, you know, and what might connect us to other aspects of our species. I think it's really deep. And um, I think the great, one of my great complaints about <laughs> the world is that, you know, we're, we're always told that we are at we are at an inflection point. <laughs> this is the most important election of our lifetimes. Everything hinges on what we do now. Um, no, no. Um, at that point, I get very kind of Walter Benjamin on that. Yeah. I say, the future is not our concern. That's the concern of ideologues and gurus. Our concern is history. Angel of history faces backwards and you go back and you try and I think that's I think that's Freudian I think that's Freudian you go into the sedimented deep layers you try and do the archaeology down there and figure things out but we've just become so hooked on short-term promises you know I looked at some of the stuff at the end of the summer um, you know some of the promises made about AI and Right. 30, 40 years ago, or about driverless cars 15 years ago. We'll all be, we'll all be driving driverless cars in 2015. You know, it's just going to happen, and it didn't. And so we, we're, we're continually duped by this idea of the future, which is always, it's not next year, it's got 10 years away, and we have to decide what to do. I think we, we could be spend much better time dwelling on history. It's, 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 it's somber in that way, but I think it's also not optimistic, but I think there's, there is a, you, one learns a lot from that, you know?
I don't, if, I don't if believe. If you're learning, yeah. aren't you hoping to extrapolate from that for the future? Yeah, but only by ignoring it. I think le leave the future, future to itself. Okay. Um, I would love and, to know if people agree and with let's, that or not. <laughs> and let's really try and understand huge historical movements and find parallels okay. which illuminate our present. Okay. So, for example, you know, the fact that, you know, most societies have had to deal with their COVID, right? And it's been linked to their social and political forms of existence, right. intimately. Um, what can we learn by looking at those periods? So we're taking the word hope out of, out of the equation here? I think hope is a, I'm with Nietzsche on this, I think hope is a, is a calumny. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible concept, particularly blind hope. And uh, which is what, you know, St. Paul's line in, in Corinthians, you know, you, I think you, I think a much more important, a much more useful concept than hope is courage, mm. right? Courage. You have courage, <coughs> you, you learn, you study history, society, you <laughs> learn you. these things, and that gives you the courage to, to move on. Mm. Hope is something else. Hope is uh, something that's, it, it, it tortures people. This is what you were talking about before learning how to die a good death. Yeah. Yeah, Montaigne. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very. I would love to know if people agree with that or not. I'm sorry, but I can you have courage without hope? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you can. Um... So what are you looking forward to if the courage, you know? Well, I mean, it would be courage is you know. A woman I was I knew back in the day, Gillian Rose, very good philosopher, um, had this line that she liked, which is "Keep your mind in hell, and despair not." Keep your mind in hell, and despair not. I think that's it's courage. Yeah, yeah, that, that's courage. That's courage. And the idea of hoping for the idea of, which usually is usually based on some idea of history having a certain shape. You know, uh, some great arc, you know, um, we were all delighted by those Obama speeches when he talked that way. <laughs> and I think we have learned the sober lesson of that at this point. And I think it's... Um, the man cannot change? Hmm? The man cannot change and learn from history? Is that what we've learned? <sighs> I think we can, but... Um, I think we have to look at how it happened. It took the Second World War to create socialized medicine in Britain. So, right. so, so Trump, said, <laughs> Trump said a fascinating thing the other day. Uh, really? he, said, um, <laughs> he, said, he said, are you better off now than you were five years ago? Which is, I think, a, so fascinating because the, the, the line is supposed to be are you better off now than you were four years ago? Uh, because that's when he was president. And that's when it ended. But he said five years ago, uh, because he would like us not to draw on that memory. He would like us to erase the past of 2020. Like, um, you must think I'm an amazing pilot. I mean, we took off. It, was, uh, it felt great to be soaring above the clouds 
We had an exhilarating time. Forget about the whole crash landing part of that experience. <laughs> right. you know, remember this, this moment. And, and so, like, you just brought up the idea of, you know, world, the, the, the war as a lesson we would then draw upon to make policy decisions, mm -hmm. which involves a story that we tell about what happened in the war and why it happened and what is to be extracted. How, how mm -hmm. do we learn about ourselves and how to protect each other? Mm -hmm. The welfare state. Mm -hmm. We want to. We want to give to uh, devastated countries, not pummel them, so that the dark tendencies don't emerge. Mm -hmm. I so, so, I, so, so here we are now. I mean, we we have enormous questions to answer about what what kind of world we want to make today. Forget about the past and forget about the future. But there's an art of living which I think we need to be focused on. Um, this is probably not the last virus. Um, I keep reading about this climate change thing. Um, the what? The, the, yeah, it's some, something's getting hotter. Um, <laughs> the, uh, there are places that have been democracies for some time that maybe won't be. Um, I've been reading about Israel and Gaza. It seems like things are not good there. <laughs> so we're, we're, I mean, I don't want to say that this is the most important moment ever. It's not. I don't want to say that um, this is the election of all elections. It's not. It's one, but, but I do think, and I say this to my students, I teach undergraduates and graduate students who are you know, in their teens and 20s, as most of us do here, and they feel the burden of this moment. They feel the stress and the anxiety. And we, we could have a separate panel on young people, um, which I hope you do have. Um, and uh, well, all I can say is that the, it's terrifying to be in this moment in history in some way because you feel the pressure of all these things. It's also in some ways an incredible privilege to be the people alive at a moment where it feels like we're going to be making decisions about which way to go on a number of these things. And I guess one reason, you know, you asked this great question, what do we mean by COVID? And clearly when I talk about COVID, I'm not just talking about the disease born of the virus. Like it characterizes this moment. And um, in fact, I don't think COVID is in the title of my book. It's, it's like, for me, it's this extended moment. And, and I think it's so important for us to have a better diagnosis, to face up to what we went through in this time and the ways in mm -hmm. which these crises hit us, the ways in which we responded and the nature of our response revealed something about us. So like the fact that we all went to the Hamptons and <laughs> you know, Daphne's home alone. And, and now- Alone, right? lonely. Yeah, so, so there's something, right? So something so that, that revealed, I mean, for me, one of the most revelatory moments or revelatory things that happened in 2020 is when everything was falling apart and the economy was crashing, and we didn't know who would live and who would die. We came up with this idea, the only people who should go to work are the essential workers. <laughs> and it's amazing. I mean, I, I don't know if you've written about this, but like, when I grow up to be a philosopher, I want to write about what, what happens in this thing. Like the, some people are essential. There's some people whose labor are essential, is essential, right? And you know what? I'm guessing none of us in this room turn out to be essential, um, uh, right? I mean... So we have some medical doctors for maybe, or, or health workers. I don't know who was in the room, but, I, but some of us in this room, most of us in the room were not essential. And it, so there were health workers who were essential. 
Um, and it was in custodians and uh, subway drivers and clerks and people who worked in agriculture. And you would think that to say someone, someone is essential, it's an honorific. First, we thank you, we honor you, and we did bang the pots and pans for the healthcare workers at 7 p.m. for a few months. Mm -hmm. But then you would think we would formally recognize it with, you know, healthcare and masks and PPE and to make sure that those essential people really get all the appreciation that they deserve. And I think what happened is that in the United States, to be called essential meant that you were deemed expendable. Exactly. To, to, to be essential was to be expendable. Mm -hmm. and, and the overwhelming majority of the, well, disproportionately the people who were essential were low-wage black and Latino workers. Mm -hmm. And it's like we got to the edge of this moral precipice. And we said, here's, what, here's where the real value is. And just at the moment when we were due for the reckoning, and therefore, the policy lesson from World War II, we said, no, let's forget about it. Let's go back. <laughs> let's go to the Hamptons. And, 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 and I could tell you that story for thing after thing that we revealed about ourselves in this moment. Maybe you said, Daphne, we became more who we are. So much got expressed. And the reason I, for me, the reason I wrote this, I don't know if I want to call it literature, but my literature of this 2020 book is because I think we have this resource where we can see what, you know, who, we, who we really are. Like, what, what do we do? And we can do that as our families, our cities, our country. We can compare what countries around the world did. We can look at what happened in Queens and what happened in Staten Island. Like the story in Queens, the character in Queens is a woman. We haven't talked about this more positive side, but one of the most amazing things that happened in 2020 is that neighborhoods around the world started these mutual aid networks, mutual aid societies. Talk about archaic. In the, in the absence of government help, yeah. I'm going to knock on my neighbor's door. You need anything? Richard, do you need, is there something? So I, I could use some help. Do you need anything? And there are enormous numbers of people, tens of thousands in the city who got involved in mutual aid projects. Maybe millions of lives were affected. Around the world, it's hard to know. It's an amazing thing that we did that, and we need to remember that as part of the story. But true. there's a lot of other things as well. So my, I guess my plea um, uh, here is that we, rem we take the time to reckon with this experience and to, and, and to think about what we could learn so that we know when the war is over, here's what we should do. The only thing I would say to all, some of what you said, is the question of collective narcissism. All mm -hmm. the question many of my friends ask is, was it always this bad, or was it better? I mean, in the 50s, they sat with a threat, the Cold War, sitting under desks. A little bit, I think, we act in the 2000s a little bit like the very, and I shouldn't call them very young, young parents act like there's a new discovery to um, 
how to get your children to sleep, how to breastfeed, how to... I don't know if the appallingness of the world is it new? The appallingness of the world has existed always. <laughs> yeah, I could be mine. None, none of those things were ever done before. Right. Breastfeeding kids and right. knowing how to bring them up. Like, and, this is all and we've got to get newly it right discovered. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And I sometimes think we act like war is newly discovered, mm -hmm. partly because Americans are not used to living with war. Um, Racism, at its worst, is newly discovered. How much of any of this is newly discovered? But there's something about our moment that allows for a kind of um, I don't know if narcissism is the right word. Yeah, so I, 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 I understand, understand what word. I understand yeah. your question. I um. So what, I teach an undergraduate course at NYU on the social challenges of climate change. One of the things that um, I tell students is that they, we are actually in this kind of interesting, pivotal moment where we're, we're shifting from a geological era from the Holocene, which lasted about 11 or 12,000 years, into the Anthropocene, which is new. And we have you know, levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that we haven't had in our, you know, our, our, since we've been recording it. Um, and so there is something new about this climate that we're in, I think. And I don't know what, the, what that means for us, but I think it means something really important um, that, that weighs on us. And I, and I think there's also something new, which is the... Um, the speed with which things move, the pace at which oh, a virus yeah. in China gets around the world. But then I was and, thinking of infant mortality. Yeah, that's old. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, I think I, I, for me, I guess I, I, I guess old. I, I guess infant no. mortality is a fairly yeah. um, triumphant. Oh, uh, bring it down. You mean? No, I'm saying. It's sort of in contradiction to yes, there is, there is climate change, there is this, but the, we all there there was infant enormous rate of infant mortality. A yeah. little bit. That's what I mean I, again I by collective I, narcissism. I, I, I think that's a f totally fair point, and I guess for me, I get, I feel less. I feel so. I feel, feel like it's important to identify the the the, the new th threats that we don't know how to deal with. Like yeah. I, we're really scrambling to figure out this climate change right. stuff. Yes. But I also think we need not ask the question of whether it's the worst ever or whether it's <laughs> new or old. We, we need to solve the problems that are shaping our lives at the moment. And again, just thinking about the young people I teach and learn from, they're, they're a really challenging set of questions where people feel um, ill-equipped Ill and and this has come up a little bit in this conversation, but there is a skepticism about expertise that's important for us to deal with as well. There's very little trust. Right. And 2020 was also a story of that. It didn't seem like the people 
who knew the most actually knew what to do. And we're reeling from that experience. We're reeling from that experience. And the politics don't necessarily go in one direction. And the emotions don't necessarily go in one direction. So, I, so I, you know, I... I mean, one could also say we're reeling from Derrida, that there is no one fictive, one truth, that it is all fictive and subjective. Mm. I'm saying there's an existential... And narrative collapse. Yeah. Aspect to all of this. So I think this is a great question. I know there's a question, but I just want, can I jump? Yeah, on? yeah, sure. Um, it's a different question. So, uh, you know, one thing that came out of this, I think uh, for me is also, you know, Daphne's, well, like, what did you read during COVID? Like that to me is like, that it becomes a system, uh, a symptom. That's a, a legible text that would be really interesting to see what people read and where and when and what. And one of the books I read is uh, was uh, the world of yesterday, Stefan Zweig, yeah. um, which was amazing. I mean, obsessed with Vienna, and I was writing about Vienna, so I had to read it. And friends had always recommended it. And I was just stunned by how it felt like it could have been written like three months before. And, and those of you who haven't read it, um, Zweig, um, who was one of the biggest authors of his time, um, is having the just an absolute uh, collapse of the heart. Uh, he's in Vienna. He has to flee Vienna because of uh, the Nazi regime. And uh, Zweig writes this very long memoir about his life, which isn't nostalgic. What it is, is he sets this up in, in the introduction that he is so overwhelmed by what he realizes is his, has been his lifelong illusion that history is progressive, yeah. that, that we are moving towards a complete self-consciousness of humanity, that we will be the humans that we are, that, 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 that all of culture, the, all the things that he had internalized and worked so hard to build and to build in Vienna, the center of culture, was in fact, he realizes that is in fact not inevitable. Progress is not inevitable. That it is simply one ideology amongst other possible yeah. ideologies. Yeah, sure. And he, but not, this is not. It's a mid 19th century ideology. Absolutely. And he, he feels this. Absolutely. That's why it appears on the Brazilian flag. Exactly. And then so, and so he has this, this uh, basically collapses. He watches this and then writes the book and basically puts it in the, in the post in Brazil and then kills himself. himself. So it's not a good ending. But part of the thing, one of the things that he adds to this and why he feels it so keenly, he thinks that, that this is an effect. And I, the ghost to your question, I think, is that he says, you know, one of our problems is that is is media. Like, we can be in Vienna, he says, and we can learn about someone killing themselves and, or being shot in China and know within 12 hours that right. that's happened. I mean, that sounded so quaint, 12 hours. We know in 60 seconds, right. not one yes. person, but hundreds of thousands of people dying all of the yes. time. So part of the issue here is is perceptual, mm. but that doesn't negate it. We can't, no. that, that all those people were already dying, but yes, now our obligation to the other is now 
is now also part of that crisis. And one response, and it's not a healthy response, but it is a survival response, is to shut down and close off from it. The other possibility is to find new reservoirs for compassion. And that that's something we could say has been lost, amongst the other things, is the curriculum of compassion that we need to develop to implement yeah. these things so they're not anecdotal, but in fact, yes. standard. Yeah. Yes. Simon, you, you had something to say, and then we're going to open it up to well, questions. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question to the audience, really, which is, yeah, here we are in the Holy of Holies, New York Psychoanalytic Society, ghosts of Ernst Chris and Lowenstein on Canberra, all these great figures. Um, COVID and psychoanalysis. COVID and psychoanalysis. I'm very interested in knowing how it changed the relationship to patients, transference, and symptoms. What showed up? And was that different? Wow. It was also good for business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, yeah. I'm, I'm going to thank, thank you, thank you all. all. Um, here's an opportunity for people to ask questions. Well, I really don't have a question. I just want to add to what Mr. Simon mentioned about COVID being good for business. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the philosophy uh, business. While I was there, I was just writing something. Um, as a former nurse's assistant at Wild Cornell Hospital, um, during the onset of COVID, I witnessed the rapid loss of lives eventually resigned for personal reasons and also I was overwhelming seeing what I had to see on a daily basis. Sadly, I also experienced the heartbreak of watching my private client succumb to COVID at his home. It was disheartening to realize that as, a, as private duty aides, we lack support and resources despite our crucial role in providing private nursing duties. Often, CNAs and home LTAs feel underappreciated, unfairly labeled as merely performing the dirty work, when in reality, our contribution to healthcare is just as significant as any other healthcare mm. workers. And my reason for saying this, sure. we didn't have as private duties, the resources are aligned to call up and say, okay, we just experienced our client passing, could I get some counseling after being attached? Mm. Because we are private, so it's like we go unrecognizable. However, amidst the challenges, COVID also presented opportunities. The demand for private care skyrocketed due to the fear of hospital admissions, prompting me to establish my own home companion care LLC. Now with 15 staff members serving across all five boroughs, I prioritize providing, we prioritize providing exceptional care tailored to each client's individual. Despite this hard, the hardship COVID brought, some silver linings, it acted as a catalyst for families to come closer together with individuals rediscovering the value of spending quality time with their loved ones, while it's disheartening that it took such traumatic events to unite people. It underscores our collective resilience and capacity for mm. growth. So um, during COVID, I went out there, we're well known all over five boroughs, myself and my staff, and COVID is really what pushed me to formulate my LLC. I'm no longer working in the hospital facilities, and I'm enjoying it. My staff mm. is enjoying it. The clients are enjoying it. So yes, that's a perfect example of how COVID was good mm. for business. Good for you. All right. Good for you.
I think I, 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 that, that was right. fantastic. I'm so happy. I'm so happy you shared that. And I, and I, I want to bring in the other voices. So I just have a really quick response. But I literally just last week published an article in Social Science of Medicine about the experience of nurses. And it's a case against the use of the language of burnout, which for me throws the onus of responsibility on the nursing staff itself. Because the context of this is that there have been massive numbers of nurses around the country who left their jobs mm -hmm. to do other things. Yep. Yeah. There's a crisis in hospitals. We have hospital administrators and people experiencing this. And the language that's used in the industry is burnout, which is to say, like, well, something was wrong with you because you just didn't have it's the like fire you needed to keep it going. Right. And right, the much right. better, I think, way to think about this is that there's, there's moral injury, that, that hospitals as institutions failed to provide the resources that the staff that different levels needed to cope with this unprecedented situation and the reality, ever-present reality of death, um, in addition to one's own fears of, 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 of catching the virus. So uh, it's, there was moral suffering. There has been moral injury. It's important for us to be able to talk about it in institutional terms and not just in terms of kind of what we have, what we're capable of. But that said, it's amazing to hear that you've turned this into a great uh, business opportunity. So I hope, I hope our healthcare institutions are okay too. Yes, yeah. I just want to add something. Yeah. I have um, a close friend whose daughter is a nurse. And because there were no PPE and no masks, the mother went out to the community and asked them to make masks. They made over a thousand masks and donated them to the hospital that the daughter worked then. And the daughter was not allowed to use one mask because they didn't have enough for the doctors. And she got sick, very sick. Oh, and then eventually she you know, uh, quit. Yeah. And now is doing yeah. like you so are private. Yeah. 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 yeah, I thought I saw some other hands also. Yes, please. Oh, you've been Lisa, you have to, I, watching I, you. So I, think you I, think, I think, Lisa, I think you have to use the mic because oh, there's people on yes. Zoom. <clears throat> I'm a child psychiatrist, so I would, I'm, I'm looking at things through the lens of relationships and even back to Melanie Klein and the maternal relationship. But I think the thing that made COVID so uniquely different than other aspects of history is that not only did we begin to fear each other because of the politics, we began to fear each other because the nature of infectious disease is that I can get it from you. And we were told that the only way not to get it from you was to stay six feet away, was to stay home, was to not go out. I'm not sure, and, and I'm not sure that that language was used during the pandemic of 1917, because people weren't as aware of mm -hmm. how infectious mm. disease does its thing. So I think when we're thinking even sociologically about why COVID reflected so much about us mm. as humans and people, not only is this sort of larger picture of the politics and even larger maybe, you know, relationships and we, like, it was every man for himself, but we were told mm. that we had to stay separated from each other and that we couldn't necessarily knock on the door of our neighbor because we could get sick if we do that. And so that's the, that, that's yeah. another really, I think, unique yeah. aspect of the okay. process of what can, happened. Can I, I'll, I'll go even one step deeper than that, which I think everything you said is totally right and brilliantly yeah, insightful. But here, here's the other thing. Here, yeah, well, so the first words of the book, a guy named Ben Beer, who was doing his fellowship in, cardi in uh, cardiology, and what he said is his wife um, was recovering from 
uh, cancer, and she was immunocompromised. She just had her whole immune system obliterated, and she's young, and he was very fearful, but he was working in ERs. And he said the thing that made this entire experience so profoundly disturbing, existentially disturbing, personally and socially, is our relationship to the world is the fundamental part of our, or of our relationship to the world is breathing. Mm -hmm. We breathe in, we, we take in the place where we are. We breathe out, we become part of it. That's the fundamental chemistry of life. And what made being alive in this moment so traumatic in a primordial way is the thing that keeps us alive, the thing we need to live, became the thing that was most likely to kill us, to breathe. And so our f the fundamental chemistry of life changed. And the mask became difficult because it symbolized this break. And then the next layer of now social distance and now quarantine, we, we put up these, these layers in, in which we, it, it's true. My, I have, a, I have a child who uh, comes to these lectures sometimes, and one of the first things that happened in my family is my child got sick. He had a temperature, sweating at night, exhausted, super energetic, exhausted, you know, can't get off the couch, headache. Your parent, this is the most terrifying thing. And no one knows who's, what's COVID going to do, who's going to catch it, what, who's going to die, who's going to live. No one knows. Your parent. You read the newspaper for advice. Put your kid in their room. Close the door. Slide things under the door. Give, leave them a bowl of soup. What, what parent is going to do that to their child? Right? What, who, who's, who's morally, physically, humanly capable of saying to your child, we'll catch you in seven days? And so suddenly, we, we know, we, of course, you don't do any of that. But how close do you get? Do you stay in the bed? All, and I think every one of us encountered situations like this, right, which, which threatens the social fabric, right? And we've all now experienced that. And I think when I asked before who's processed this, I don't know where to begin. So I thank you for asking that question. Was there another question here? No? Yes. With all due respect to history and all that it can teach us, I feel like um, the future has gotten short shrift in the sense that this is, uh, there's a couple of reasons why uh, history won't help us with regard to uh, the unprecedented nature of this, a couple of points. One, because of transportation, things are going to go faster. Two, climate change, the viruses will spread. They'll spread more quickly because of the transportation. And uh, so there'll be more of these for sure, not probably. Mm -hmm. So the virologists tell us. Actually, they told us about five or 10 years ago. But beyond that, um, what we have is the sort of the other businesses that did well, besides healthcare, um, from what I've heard is that there were record profits in 
all major corporations. Now, the thing is that everything's very tightly connected systemically, systematically, I should say, because of IT. Information technologies made sure that there's better and better integration, news travels faster, uh, calculations travel faster. And so, the problem that I see is that there's no incentive <laughs> to change the system. The system has profited the people it usually profits, that we know from history, but it's done so more quickly. And uh, I think systemic change is needed in some radical way because the thing that everyone felt was that they had no toilet paper. Uh, and after a few, <laughs> after just a few iterations of asking why, it comes down to supply chain stuff and how basically information <clears throat> plus stuff gets distributed. And it's very fragile. Now, is there an incentive to change that? There should be, but the idea that the same people keep profiting from the way the status quo makes it worrisome for me in a way that in the past was not as big of a worry because the speed of all these things happening was far, far less. The interconnectivity makes it much more crucial in a way that I don't know if we can learn from the past about that. Anyway, that's my, my question, like, what do we do with that? <laughs> mm. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, now you ask. Um, I, have, I think this conversation could go on for a long time, but we have to wrap things up. And um, I'm, I'm so grateful to our panelists and to all of you who came today. Thank you. And thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Books. Beautiful books. <laughs>